and the at the same time to to look at what's involved in our salvation and to deal with the concept of by grace through faith but then on the other hand to also look at the same time at, at the law and what's involved so far as our responsibility to God where's the motivation uh, come from uh, is it possible for since we are saved by grace through faith is it possible for an individual as long as he has uh, faith in God to be lost and if, if, if so how uh, if it's if you're saved by grace through faith um, is it essential that you do things exactly right if so why and on the other hand is it uh, unimportant uh, since you're saved by grace through faith can you just simply operate from the standpoint of I'll uh, we'll organize ourselves and worship and etc. and do based on what seems right to us that you know that uh, we're saved by grace through faith. Anyway, what about your personal conduct? Um, do you pursue life from the standpoint? Well, we're saved by grace through faith. We're we're all imperfect. We all sin, and as long as I've got my faith in Jesus, you know that God's going to understand uh, certain things. Uh, is is that kind of attitude acceptable or proper? from within this concept of, of saved by grace through faith. If so, why? If not, then why not? Um, let's start with you, Mark. And let's read uh, uh, Ephesians 2 uh, through verse 10. And we'll take, go around about three verses each, you know, and, and then the last one or the first one, read four. And then come over to chapter 4. <coughs> And verse uh, 17, and we'll read uh, uh, 17 on through chapter 5 and verse uh, 21. Okay, so, um, so we'll start through the first 10 verses, and then we'll go over to chapter 4 and verse 17 and read through 21 of chapter 5. So we'll start with the uh, first time. Yeah, just read. Yeah, just read several. Bible. I can't. First, first. That's okay. Just read it. Just stop at a at a convenient place, and then the next person pick up. Okay. Um, let's read first seven. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive when Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, now chapter 4 and verse 17, the next one pick up. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. 
If you have not taught Lara, Lara Croft, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put out concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And as you put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness, therefore putting away lying, each one speaking truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality, or any kind of impurity, or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such, as a man, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do, do not be partakers. <clears throat> with them for they for once darkness but now you're alive for the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in the goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather expose them, for it is a shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, go back to the second chapter. <coughs> And he, and he is dealing with our salvation in Christ. He says in verse 8 that it's by grace we've been saved. Somebody will tell me, what's, what's the meaning of grace? 
Okay, unmerited favor would be Not great. giving us what we deserve. Right. Well, that's, I guess that'd be mercy. Giving well, us what we don't deserve. Grace would involve mercy, right. It's unmerited favor. We're not getting what we deserve when grace is involved. So, so our salvation involves unmerited favor. It means that we do not get what we deserve. If we get what we deserve, it's not grace. Okay? It's by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay? And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay? What does that mean now? That we know what grace is, and then saved through faith. What's, what's involved there? God says and believe it. Put your trust in it. Okay. Uh, belief, uh, putting your trust in, uh, but relative to salvation, what is your trust in? In the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay. In the sacrifice. In other words, that, uh, that all that you will do is because of your faith in Christ, but it's not these things that you do that you have your trust in. Your, your trust is in Christ for salvation, and you may operate by faith in Christ and do whenever you do various things, whether it's the way you organize your church or, or, uh, or worship God or, or conduct your life or whatever it is. But, but that's not what you're saved by. You're, you're, you're saved through that faith in Christ. That it's an unmerited favor, and you're, it's through faith, not of yourself. It's the, it's the gift of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, it's, it's believing in Christ that causes a person to have everlasting life, and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so you have that statement there is a statement of by grace through faith. God so loved that he gave, that's his grace, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, that's by faith. Uh, the same thing uh, all the way through the, the book of Acts, statements like... Uh, Repent towards God and then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20 and 21. Okay, now, what is involved in that statement? You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's, it's a gift of, gift of God. Just how extensive is that? What does it encompass or not encompass? Okay, it's not of works if uh, if it's not of works, and if it is the gift of God, and if it is the result of your trust in the sacrifice of Christ, uh, then are we saved in any sense because we call ourselves by the right name, or we organize ourselves in the right way? Or we go through the acts of worship in a precise way? No, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me like it would. No, it doesn't. Uh, in fact, if 
if you were saved in some sense because you were doing some things right, what would that be? Would that be uh, right? It'd be, it wouldn't be unmerited salvation. In other words, if if you could look down the street at the other people uh, that are claiming to be in Christ, you could say, "Well, look, uh, the Bible plainly, the New Testament plainly shows this kind of organization. We have elders and deacons, and and our elders and deacons meet the qualifications, and we call ourselves uh, just Christians, and and we have elders. We believe in elders in every church." And therefore, we're saved and they're lost because they've got a pastor down there. You know, and there's no such thing as one pastor over a congregation. And not only that, they're calling themselves uh, by things other than Christians. Well, then if we're saved because we recognize this thing of elders and deacons and the autonomy of the congregation, then, then what we do definitely does, obviously, plays a, plays a part in it. Uh, and that would mean that... Uh, and if you're doing those things, played a part in it, what would that mean if, if you were wrong on that concept? If that plays a part in your salvation, then what would it mean if you were wrong in it? We'd be lost. Be lost. And so if you're wrong, wrong on the organization, you'd be lost. Okay, the same was true if, uh, if we, partake of, we partake of the Lord's Supper uh, on the first of the week, and we sing songs, and we have prayer, and we give of our means. Well, if if you were uh, saved because you were partaking of the Lord's Supper and singing song and giving of your means and having prayer and listening to a sermon and going to Bible class, then you would be saved directly because of something that you did, right? Well, then that would mean that what about if you were wrong on any of that? Wrong at every point. Right, you'd be, be lost, wouldn't you, on the thing? So that, but it, what it states here is we're saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. And that, that's just as plain as it can be. And it's not by works. But then it says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, we see in verse 10 that good works are not being kicked out the door, are they? We're not saved by works. But Paul says we're not throwing works out the door that we are actually created in Christ Jesus to do good works. All right, now, we're, we're not saved by anything other than by grace through faith. And it's unmerited favor based on our trust in Christ. Let's get over here to verse 17, though. And what, what does he mean when he says, uh, uh, So I tell you this and insist on it. So Paul says, I'm not only telling you this, I'm insisting on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now they're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They, they've lost all sensitivity, given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, this, this person that's saved by grace through faith and not of himself, a free gift of God, didn't come to know Christ this way. Now, you were heard of him and taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, 
created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, there he says, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. In your anger, don't sin. But while you're still angry, do not give the devil a foothold. And he who's been stealing must steal no longer, must steal no longer, but, but must work. And do something useful with his hands and, and have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building others up. Uh, verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind, compassionate to one another. Uh, be, verse 1, be imitators of God. Live a life of love. Look at verse 3, speaking to these people that are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. You know, it's interesting when you read that statement because we talk so much about environment and we excuse so much because of environment. But man, if you haven't already, you need to go back and read about the environment those people lived in in pagan Rome. Uh, that the idolatrous worship actually involved idolatry. Like Baal, for example, was a fertility male god. And they had their fertility female gods. And they had these paid uh, priests that were cult uh, in these various cults and the people would actually fornicate in worship of these various male and, and female goddesses. And there was absolutely nobody in the Roman world that believed uh, that this kind of thing was wrong. Uh, homosexuality abounded. Uh, the historians record that 15 of the last 16 Caesars were homosexuals. And so obviously it wouldn't, didn't, sound, didn't go over very well if you went around on the street corner preaching that homosexuality was, was wrong or a perversion like Paul said. Uh, the Jews that were the closest to righteousness believed in a plurality of marriages. David had nine wives. A Jew with all good conscience could have a plurality of wives. Uh, the Jews would use the prostitutes. And, uh, of course, you can read through the Old Testament. There are concubines and there are different relationships and all. And, and yet in this environment, speaking to people that were brought up that way, he says there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. In other words, that this business of becoming new in Christ was such that these people were, were to so completely change their lives that there wouldn't even be a hint. And remember now, they're saved by grace through faith, not of works. And he said, don't even let there be a hint of sexual immorality. Or of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place. What does that say to you when it speaks of obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking? Look at the whole context. No immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Don't let anybody deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. All right, let me ask you this. Go back to verse 4 where it says... Uh, uh, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. The only thing I can think of in its context here, of coarse joking and all, is the type of joking that involves morality, immorality, whether you're making light and, and, and humorous of uh, drunkenness and debauchery. In other words, really a lot of the type of humor that would maybe 
uh, come across on Johnny Carson are, are the type that is big with our comedians today, where you uh, where their humor deals with the sexuality, or the humor sometimes actually deals with God. And I forget what it was, some statement I heard the other day that was uh, close to blasphemy. Uh, what was that? I can't even think of it. It's it almost blasphemy. And yet, it was on a, it was one of those shows, and uh, everybody laughed, you know, and I, I wondered how many Christians were, were in the audience, you know. And, uh, but you know, it was a sexual type thing, and God was used in it, and everybody laughed. And thing, but I think that's all I can see in there is that, uh, obviously, there's nothing wrong with humor that's wholesome, and his context is one of immorality. So he's saying that not only that we don't act immoral, but the type of jokes that we tell ought not to be jokes that, uh, that make light of immorality and ungodliness. Does it look that way to you? you all? I don't know what else he would be saying, personally, if that's not, and it's, it's an easy thing to fall in. I think in, our, in fact, it's been interesting to me through the years that a lot of people are, that are very moral so far as their own practice uh, sometimes we'll get into some pretty off-color type of joking and jesting. No immoral. Now, look at this, because we've already said we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anybody should boast. We don't earn it. It's a free gift. But then he turns right around and says in verse 5 of chapter 5, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And said, so don't let anybody deceive you. In other words, anybody that tells you you can live like that and, and still be saved, he says they're deceiving you. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those that are disobedient. In other words, God's wrath, God's judgment is coming because of that type of behavior. In fact, uh, if you think about it, uh, why are we all dying? That's, isn't, are we experiencing God's wrath in our own death? that uh, we're, we're dying because of sin and God absolutely abhors it. Our initial separation from God and our own death has been brought about because of sin. Uh, it says, uh, don't be partners with them, uh, the people that are endorsing that type of thing. It says, for you were once in darkness. Again, these people once lived that way for those that would use their environment as an excuse. But now you are the light of the Lord. Live as children of light, the fruit of the light. Okay, now, how do you reconcile being told that you're going to have to live this kind of life and don't let anybody deceive you live in less than that, you will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. How do you reconcile that with saved by grace through faith and, and not of works? What's he, what's he, put it all... Somebody want to put it all together, what Paul's saying. That maybe, that maybe receiving this grace uh, involves uh, giving up the old ways, I mean, repenting of what you used to do. Okay, that's, that's good, Brian. Brian's saying that, that the grace, the free gift, that maybe that receiving the grace involves repentance itself. In fact, that's what we have. It. When we look at the conversions, we have a repent and then be baptized into Christ. Uh, I preach repentance towards God and then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 20, 21. In other words, you're not even ready to put your trust. Jesus is there as a sacrifice, 
But you're not even ready to put your trust in him, even if you intellectually believe in him, until you actually repent. John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you that except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And so that obviously the whole message in preparation for the kingdom and then on through was one of repentance before you get in. So that would that reconcile that? Uh, what Paul's saying here, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, and that you have this kind of life demanded that if a person repents, what's, what's involved in repentance? Now, what's the literal meaning of repentance? Anybody want to? Change your mind. Okay, change of mind. It, it does not mean change of action. It means change of mind, but what invariably follows with a change of mind? Change of action. If, he, if, if there has been no change of action, has there been a change of mind? Okay, out of the abundance of a man's heart, his mouth speaketh. That uh, we, we act based on uh, what, what's, in our, what's in our heart. And so there, there is the assumption, in other words, Paul is not contradicting himself. He's not saying that you're saved by grace through faith and all, and then turns around saying do this to be saved. But what he is calling on them to do is to remember that they were once that way, but now that they've changed. And, and they are, to look at verse 1, they are to be imitators of God and, and to live a life of love. All right, then go back here to chapter 2 and verse 10, right after stating that they're saved by grace through faith. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God's advanced planning, uh, God planned to save us in Christ. And he knew the only way we could be saved is by grace through faith. But his advanced planning called for a change of heart based on Christ that would cause us to be people who did good works, as he, as he mentioned here. Um, John said we love him because he first loved us. Paul said in Romans 5 that uh, the, our love for God is motivated by our knowledge of Jesus' death on our behalf. He said somebody might die for a righteous man, somebody might die for a good man, but while we were sinners, that Christ died for us. And then he says the Holy Spirit has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. In other words, it's this information about God's love for us and his grace as expressed in Christ that Paul expects to become the motivating factor to cause us to love God and to do these things. Okay, uh, anybody else with any comments on that to tie that together? Then what if uh, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works and all? What about the person who goes out here and uh, fornicates or engages in the coarse jesting or is dishonest and stealing? and still believes in Christ. They obviously don't trust the Lord or love the Lord and, and believe in that philosophy of life. They believe in their own. They don't trust him. Okay, they, they may intellectually believe in him, but we're saying they don't. Uh, would it be a contradiction of terms or is it consistent to say that for this person to say, I believe in Jesus in the sense that I really trust him and I believe he's right in the sacrifice, and I love him. And then after you say you love him and you trust him, to then not have the desire to live the way he wants you to live. Is there a contradiction there? Yeah. 
Okay, well, the be repentance. The, the, the repentance isn't there. Okay, the, you have, right, you have to have the repentance, and even as a Christian, we got this constant thing of repentance, that as we, we're constantly, repentance is not a one-time thing, is it? It's a, that we get into the grace of God and have access through faith based on repentance, and then the teaching all through the New Testament that we continue in that grace and benefit from that sacrifice with a heart that's always willing to repent. That it, it has to be constantly uh, one that is, will, is willing to repent. Now, I think that's good to look at because what is happening now in the uh, church, in a, in a good positive sense, for years, those of us with a fundamentalist background have uh, had it emphasized about being right. And we've even had it preached sometimes that anything you're wrong on might cause you to lose your soul. Or somebody else out here who loves the Lord uh, because they're ignorant on some point might lose their soul. Well, we're actually getting away from that. And there's a lot of teaching, uh, men such as Rubel Shelley is a good example, that on grace. But a lot of times when you, uh, when you correct the wrong, you can go to the other extreme. And so you can wind up doing a lot of teaching just on grace and create a situation where you're saved by grace through faith. And if, a, if in the process of preaching and teaching on grace, we don't emphasize repentance and change of life and these teachings here, we can, we can actually create a situation where morality can take, can, can take a step, step backwards. At the same time, grace is going forward. It's possible for morality to go back, I believe, unless we do like Paul is doing here, and we put it all together. In fact, it's interesting in Paul's letters. It's like when we were being fundamentalist about everything, we, we preached on commands constant. And we, we left uh, Ephesians 2, 6 through 8, for the Baptists to preach on. And, and the, so they had Ephesians 2, 6 through 8, and we had Ephesians 4. <laughs> and so we, we went. And But really, in the... In the Bible, it's interesting that Paul wrote both of it, didn't he? He wrote Ephesians 2 and he wrote Ephesians 4. And every time in all of Paul's letters, when he talks about salvation by grace and not of works and not by commands, in those exact same letters, he also talks about godliness of life and makes it clear that a person cannot inherit the kingdom of God with an immoral or ungodly life and that God has every reason to expect you to live a changed life. And he... Paul, at least to my mind, he just seems to assume that if you have your faith in Christ, the natural consequence of that is a certain way of life. Um, that statement, do not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, okay, if the kingdom of God is like the church and the people that are around now, what is that saying? I mean, if those people won't inherit the kingdom of God, they're not spiritually a part of the kingdom of God. If what we're all looking to inherit, in other words, we're all citizens of the kingdom, we're part of his church, but what we're looking for is eternal life. In other words, that's, that's the goal, and that's what the Lord has left for us. The, the goal of everything uh, is, is eternal life, that our trust in Christ and submission to him and everything, that that is our goal, is, is eternal life. And the, the reason for preaching this good news to others is eternal life. People are dying and, and they're heading in that direction. So the way I understand that, that the kingdom begins right here on this earth, but it continues on into that eternal kingdom and we, when we leave here. And so there, the inheritance uh, of, the, of eternal life and that eternal kingdom is to these individuals here who have their trust and have, have changed their life. And again, the change of life 
is not from a standpoint of I'm doing this to be saved, but it's a saved person who has repented that is doing this because he loves the Lord and he honestly believes that this is right. In fact, think about it this way. If you honestly believe something is right, isn't it kind of foolish to want to do anything else? I mean, if you obviously believe it's right, at the same time you love the one who gave it, uh, it, it seems, in fact, Paul's whole approach, it seems to me, was that it, it was just foolish to live any other way. This was it. With all of that said, I, I think it might be good to address the fact, though, that we do sin, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean we don't love the Lord. Our love's not perfected, and we do make mistakes, but we don't continue to willfully sin. Right, we, right, we don't continue to willfully sin, and that we would recognize that we fall short in this area, but if you've got repentance, for example, we're not saying that somebody that has uh, been sexually immoral that he's automatically lost, but he would be lost in what situation? If he didn't repent. Okay, if he just continued in that. Uh, in uh, Hebrews 10, 25, that for those that continue to willfully sin, there is no sacrifice for sin. That, uh, that you, you can be saved from willful sin if you repent. Uh, remember John in 1 John 5 spoke of a sin that was unto death and a sin that was not unto death. And he said for the person that the sin unto death, not even to pray for that, that, you know, that, that there was no sense. But for this sin that was not unto death. And the only way I can understand that in light of all we have in the Bible is the sin that was unto death was this person that's sinning and refuses to repent. And a sin that was not unto death is like James says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That the sin that is not unto death is this person that, that is willing to confess and repent and go ahead and pray. You know, God is you know, forgiving that individual. Okay, flip over to Galatians, and we won't read this in detail, we'll just uh, gleam it and show that he does exactly the same thing. I shouldn't say flip over, I should say flip back to Galatians, the third chapter. I was trying to back behind Ephesians, that's not there. Well, you've got the same thing. Yes. Okay. Page 1513. Okay, Galatians. Yeah. Alright, now, look at the third chapter, and we'll notice he does exactly the same thing. It's a little different situation here than Ephesians, but the same principle involved. Uh, in verse 3 of chapter 3, are you so foolish, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Um, in verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credit to him for righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, he's made it clear. You're not justified by human effort. You're justified by faith. Uh, and then he goes on, uh, said the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. 
All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. And cursing is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous one will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and became a curse for us. And then uh, verse 15, let me take an example from everyday life. No one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established. And so it is in this case. Uh, in other words, the promise was made to Abraham that people were going to be saved by faith. And now he says, somebody cannot come along and add conditions to it. And, and he says in verse 17, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the promise God made to Abraham. In other words, you can't come along and add any condition to this promise made to Abraham. If the inheritance, verse 18, depends on law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Verse 21, the law, therefore, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would certainly be by law. Okay, no question then that he says you're saved by grace through faith. <coughs> you are not saved in any sense by human effort. You are not saved by keeping laws. And remember this law that he was talking about, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not uh, covet, uh, honor uh, God, uh, all your heart, mind, and soul, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, all of these precepts were involved in that law, and, and yet he says that you're not saved by the law, so you're not saved by doing these things. So couldn't be any clearer that we're saved by grace through faith and not by law. Okay, now come over here to chapter 5, and notice he does the same things he does over in Ephesians. He says in verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Okay, now, come on down to verse uh, 13. You, my brothers, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. The entire law is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, now, let's see, Steve, read that starting with verse 16 on down through verse 26. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful na nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Okay, notice we have exactly the same 
things said in a different way, a different situation. Uh, he makes it clear that you are absolutely not saved by law, that you've been deceived. If anybody tells you you're saved by law, and that includes, the, remember the law, as far as even the Old Testament is concerned, the psalmist said the law of God was perfect. Now, converting the soul, he says you are absolutely not saved by law, you're saved by grace through faith. But then, turns right around and makes this statement uh, in verse uh, 21, after talking about an immoral life, and said, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, even though you were saved by grace through faith, people who live a, a life based on that philosophy of the flesh, he said, simply will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mark? Okay. Um, I think this goes along the lines of what we're talking about, but when he says something like, live by the Spirit, and if you're led by the Spirit, and let us keep in step with the Spirit, what is, what is he talking about there? I've heard you allude to the fact that when you say Spirit, you're talking about, well, the information and all, but is he talking, like, about the Holy Spirit, or, you know, I guess what I'm asking is, I, I don't know. I just have trouble with that. I understand what you believe about the Holy Spirit and dwelling and that kind of stuff. But Okay, you can. first of all, can you see from the text there that they've got a choice? In other words, they can live that way or they can live right. the other way. Okay. okay, so there is absolutely nothing there to interfere with their choice. In other words, if, if they want to be sexually immoral, they can, right? And if they are sexually immoral, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, uh, if they want to live a life based on love and joy and peace and morality and self-control they can, right? Okay, so you can see from the context then that there is nothing that the Spirit does in this context that causes a person to be moral or causes him uh, to in any way lose his choice because he can be immoral. And Paul's saying that, you know, you've got to, in fact, uh, look what he says in verse uh, 13. You, my brothers, uh, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. In other words, you are absolutely free. Nobody is making you do anything. You're free. You make your own decisions. And so you can use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, or you can use your freedom to live the way God wants you to. All right, then I'm asking you, in light of that, what is the Spirit separate and apart from information? In other words, the, the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write this information. And, and Paul has made such statements like the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And uh, Jesus said the Spirit would guide the apostles into all truth. And the Spirit would give them a remembrance of all that he had said. And Paul said in Ephesians 3 that the Spirit opened up the mysteries of God, and when we read it, we can understand it and all. And Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is writing this information here. So we can see that the Spirit has given us information. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that nobody knows the mind of God except God. And nobody <coughs> knows the mind of a man except the Spirit of the man. And the Spirit of God has searched out the mind of God and revealed it to us in words of the Spirit's choosing. So he says, I don't know what you think until your spirit searches out your mind and tells me what you're thinking. And you and I don't know what God thinks until the Spirit reveals to us the mind of God. And so the Spirit's job has been the revelation of the mind of God. And so he's used, 
choice individuals like the apostles and prophets to reveal the mind of God and confirmed it by miracles and fulfilled prophecies and all. But that was his job. Now, so we, we get this information and to follow the Spirit is to follow the teaching of the Spirit. Just like to follow God is to do what God says. To follow Jesus is to do what Jesus says. To follow the Spirit is to do what the Spirit says. Now, looking at this context, and in the context itself, it tells you you have freedom, okay? You can choose to be one way or the other way. And you can see the Spirit gives you information. So in this context, seeing that you have freedom, seeing that you have choice, seeing that you can be morally immoral based on your own decision, I'm saying, what is the Spirit doing to the mind separate from information? Okay, nothing, that, you know, after listening to that, it doesn't look like anything in this passage, but when I read statements like, um, you know, Paul in Romans in chapter 8, he writes, I think like the Spirit pleads for us with groanings that can't be uttered, and, and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what does, I'm saying, what does heart and can express our, what we're thinking even when we don't have the words for it or anything like that, that... Uh, that no, that's not uh, anything in that realm as far as the spirit. But I'm saying from the standpoint of the effect on our heart, what is he doing? In other words, I'm saying that if I have a choice to be moral or immoral, and to be godly or ungodly, to be an imitator or not be an imitator, then what is the spirit doing at all to affect that choice other than to give me information? In other words, God's not causing you to do anything. Right. I'm saying that, that God is giving me information and the Spirit is influencing me through that information. But then the things you're talking about, that right, in other words, that's not when the, when the Spirit intercedes on my behalf or, or whatever God does through angels in the realm of providence or the intercession that's made on my behalf through Christ, that is God doing for me because of a decision I've made to trust in Him. But that it's not God causing me to be anything. That it's up to my choice. In fact, I would suggest to you that there would be no glory to God if the only reason I was good is because God in some way interfered with my free choice and made me good. I'd be a robot. That, uh, and, and in fact, I, I might even come right back at God and say, well, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you make me that way in the first place? You say, did you make me bad? Am I bad because of the way God made me, or did I become bad because of free choices that I exerted? Uh, but uh, the, the teaching, I believe, that the Holy Spirit in some mystical way comes into the heart and then makes you good. I believe not only is it wrong, but I, be, I believe it's very deceiving. And I believe it misrepresents uh, Christianity when we go out here and tell others this. And then people in the world can plainly see Christians who do ungodly things, and it doesn't look like there's much there of the Holy Spirit, you know. But if you represent it that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us the mind of God and has taught us how God wants us to live and wants us to follow him, well, then everybody recognizes, just as Paul teaches here, that we have a choice, you know, that, that we can be immoral. I mean, that it, it does, it's, not a, it's not a black eye to the Holy Spirit because Jimmy and Tammy acted in a certain way, or Jimmy Swaggart acted in a certain way, or some other person acts in a certain way, because they have a choice. But if they go around telling everybody that, like Jimmy Swaggart did, that the Holy Spirit is in him and guiding him and, uh, and changing him, 
And then he goes out here and he's all wrapped up in pornography and, and that kind of thing. Well, obviously, it looks like the Spirit's not doing his job very well. You know, if he, it would be, and if I was looking at it from a non-Christian standpoint, I'd say, I don't, I don't see that Jimmy's got anything going for him any more than anybody else, you know. But if I understood that Jimmy was operating on information and that he had the freedom of choice, an, another, remember Paul's statement that I buffet my own body and put it into subjection for fear that after preaching to others that I may be a castaway, that here was the apostle, and yet he said he had to buffet his own body that he himself, you know, could, could follow the lust of his sin. So the Holy Spirit revealed God's mind to Paul. And Paul wrote these letters under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't cause Paul to be good, that Paul had to make the decision in his own mind, you know, to, to follow. Anybody else with any uh, comment on that? Another area where I believe that's deceiving is, and I think it happens a lot, where people sometimes, in all sincerity, go to a group and they respond to the invitation, and they go up and they're told to let Christ come into their life, and the Holy Spirit comes in, they're told the Holy Spirit will change them and everything like that. Well, then, when they get into the real world, what they find out is that they've got to do some things. And if, if they... Uh, it's like that then they begin to think, let's say this person says they're going to give up drugs and give up this and give up that. And they get out here and they slip a few times. Then they, they begin to doubt, was I even saved in the first place? Did I ever have the Holy Spirit? When in reality, you know, they could know, yes, you, you, you could have been saved in the first place and put your trust and you just need to repent again, you know, and just, and just keep repenting, you know, and, and, and go ahead. Whereas they, they might think, well, I've had a false experience. I just got emotionally worked up. I, I, have, I still have the same desires, you know. It wouldn't even mean you'd have to be rebaptized just to be, just oh, no. repent. Just repent, right. Your, your baptism, in a physical way, pictures that spiritual truth of a new birth. But then you're, you're born into the family. You're, there's no need to be born again. But, uh, as long you, as you yeah. keep repenting, right. then you mess up. Right, right. Uh, anybody with any comments on that in Galatians? Any? But again, we see that as Christians, that we ought to live a certain way, not because we're earning our salvation, but because we love God, His way is right, this way He wants us to live, and not only that, even for selfish reasons, it's right. It just simply works. Uh, I think one of the most important features in, in leading the world to Christ that maybe is neglected is us doing a better job of having Christ living in us. That, uh, that we, we talk about Christian evidences, <coughs> the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And I think that uh, what would cause people to become curious and interested in Christianity is to, on a regular basis, meet Christians who were obviously a light in the environment that they lived in. In other words, they obviously have control of their life. They are obviously headed in the direction of this kind of, of thing. And I think everybody out there has made an image of God. And no matter how they're living, I think they identify with that, with that type of thing. So Josh McDowell got started in... Right. Uh, in, uh, you mean in observing that type of thing among Christians? Yeah. yeah. I know that... Uh, from my experience, I had a mother that was a believer, a stepfather that was a skeptic, and the, that when I got into Christian evidences, I honestly was biased in favor of the Bible. And in fact, it was difficult for me to understand any other way that uh, 
that although I had intellectual problems that was created by the things I read, the, uh, the way of life put forth by Christianity and practiced by you know, certain Christians and all that I was around was definitely more appealing to me and just seemed more right than the other way. Even though the other way may be appealing from a fleshly standpoint sometimes, it always seemed wrong. And so there was this emotional identification with this. I think what has happened today, I honestly believe that we have decent people out there that are skeptics that are approaching Christianity biased against it because they've had some bad experience with Christianity. Just like if I approached the study of the Koran, I probably would be very biased against it after looking at the Ayatollah and some people like that. And so if you have had your life dealing with people that went around saying that they were saved and uh, everybody's going to hell, you know, if they don't put their faith in Jesus. And you look at these people and, they, and they're, they're dishonest and they're, they're all involved in the world. Uh, they're just as selfish as anybody else. They're immoral in their lives and everything like that. Uh, it'd probably look ridiculous to you and you'd probably approach it from the standpoint of wanting to show uh, that they were actually wrong. So I think that with our lives as Christians, we do a tremendous amount about determining the type of attitude that people are going to approach the information and also in opening doors to cause them to be willing to come to our services and sit down in studies and all in the in the first place but uh, a whole lot there I mean if it's if it's right then obviously it should it should work if we believe it then we should obviously be practicing it any uh, any comment don't you think the the, from the context of Paul's writing of combating the Judaizing teachers coming in trying to force these certain like circumcision and all that kind of stuff on there, this is where these this uh, justification by grace and things comes from. He's trying to show them that they don't have to go back under that law. Right. And now we've taken these good works that we're supposed to do as Christians and putting them in the works of the law. Like of doing certain things that you brought out. I think that's right. What, I know what happened in, in my environment, Jack, and yours too, that uh, the people would readily say, oh, you're not saved by the law of Moses, but it's the law of Christ. And so then we wound up, I don't know how many sermons that I heard and even was a part of myself over the years, where you condemn people for <coughs> eternal separation from God based on the fact that you thought they were wrong in the way they were organized or their acts of worship or something like that. And, and we stood up and presented ourselves as the true people of God based on the fact that we were doing these things right. And even though there may be something lacking spiritually, but we thought everybody should identify with that. And I'm right. I think we took those very things and called it the law of Christ and substituted. But he's saying law, period. And uh, the impression has sometimes been left that the law was imperfect, and it's not. The law was perfect. Uh, when, when Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. When he said, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. When Paul said to overcome evil with good, he's quoting out of Proverbs 25.21 or 21.25, one, one or the other. Uh, there is not a single solitary principle of the New Testament that isn't taught in the Old Testament, in, in the law. The law was absolutely perfect. In the imperfect things, like the marriage situation was just something that was tolerated because of the hardness of heart and the imperfection of the people, but Jesus made it clear there that going right back to Genesis, that God gave a truth on marriage that 
And, and this other thing was something that he had just tolerated, that he always did, as Malachi said, uh, hate divorce, you know, in the way that it was practiced then. But it was absolutely perfect, and Jesus didn't come along and give some more perfect law. In fact, if you think about it in another way, if we could not perfectly keep what they call as an imperfect law, how are we going to perfectly keep this perfect law that really demands more from an internal uh, standpoint, or at least that was his, was his emphasis. So we're not saved in any sense by law, but on the other hand, if we understand salvation, we don't have it without repentance, and this type of life should follow the person that's saved. And Paul says, if it doesn't, obviously he hasn't repented, and he says, don't let anybody deceive you that, you know, this person will not inherit the kingdom of God. So grace is like God saying, okay, I'll forgive you when you want him to forgive you when, you, you know, when you're sorry or when, you're, when you repent. So God's just like, God's just like, well, you got to want Him to forgive you before He'll do it. Right, you've got to, right, you've got to be sorry and, and repent on willful sins. But one thing it would involve, that it's not like walking through life saying, I'm, I'm saved, I've sinned, now I'm lost until I repent or anything. You walk constantly cleansed by the blood of Christ with an attitude of trusting mm -hmm. Him and, and recognizing that you always fall short. And that's why that when we pray, we constantly are asking for forgiveness because we know we always fall short. And, and then now in willful sins, there would have to be a you know, repentance and all there, but then that grace also would cover ignorance. In other words, that, uh, that uh, nobody can repent any better than his knowledge. And uh, there are a number of statements in the Bible on that. Uh, a good one in the Old Testament is Numbers 15, beginning with verse 22, the whole 10 chapters of uh, Leviticus. Uh, statements in uh, John 15, 22, 15, 24, but that man cannot repent any better than his understanding and that the grace of God would be there, you know, for our ignorance on, on those things. And so this fellow down the street who, who has repented and put his trust in the Lord and is obeying to the best of his knowledge and understanding, the grace of God can cover him on those things that he's wrong on just the same as it can cover me. On something that, and that doesn't excuse it or say that it's that it's that it's except we ought to always study and, and, and be as right as we can but none of us should walk around thinking that we're more saved than the other fellow because we're doing a few more right things than he is even though we might want to reason with him on those areas but not from the standpoint of saying that hey you're lost because you have such and such or you don't do such that's not the way it ought to be done you're 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 saved in Christ and if this here is right and you're doing it wrong and you see that, then you don't want to do it simply because you love it, you know. And the same way someone would fall away when, when they willfully sin and are apathetic of the idea of repenting. They just don't, I mean, they don't, they don't want to repent. Ever. Right, if they, they, and they have that choice. Like Paul said, they've got that choice. The grace of God is there, but they have that choice that they can actually reject it and refuse to, to repent. What did you say repentance? Define repentance. Right. Mean. Literal meaning is... Uh, change of mind and so if you've been doing something wrong or I've been doing something wrong and somebody convinces me that it's wrong and so I change my mind that that's repentance and based on that I'm I'm forgiven I've now I've put my trust on him I'm forgiven the change of action will follow I may go right out there and sin again and have to turn around and repent and I think Jesus made that clear when he when Peter said how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him and seven times and Jesus said no seven times seventy that any time that he repents, you go ahead and you and you forgive him, and that's the same with our relationship to God. So this person that is an alcoholic, 
and becomes a Christian, and I'm not sure we, we're fair to these people, that these people that have become addicted to it, and then many times reach a point where they believe in Jesus, but they're thinking, I'm not just sure I can whip this, that if they're willing to repent and put their trust in him, let them become a Christian. And then they may slip again, uh, just like you might slip with your temper or something else, and let them know that do the best you can when you slip or if you slip, that you can repent and be forgiven and you just keep going. Uh, and it may take several years before they conquer it. The same thing, I think, with a person that is uh, on drugs. I'm not sure that we're fair with those people, that they can honestly change their mind, say this is wrong, I don't want to be that way, and head out in the right direction and be in Christ and they may slip a number of times. And there's no reason why that if I can repent of losing my temper or whatever else I do wrong, that they can repent of that in the, in the same way. And I think that, uh, that the good news really sometimes in our society has been robbed because we do put conditions on it. And we leave the impression that these people that are on drugs or these people that are alcoholics or whatnot that whammo, you're just going to have to be willing to say that you totally quit that before you become a Christian. Well, what we ought to be saying is, you know, change your mind, you know, express your sorrow to God and put your trust in Jesus, and then you head in the right direction with the idea of doing it perfectly. But if you do fall, he'll just keep on forgiving, just oh. as, long as, you'll re as long as you'll keep on repenting. But I think we may reach more of those people and change more of them if we put more emphasis on the good news and the salvation in Christ. Um, I was just going to say... Um Whenever there's people that like alcoholism and drugs and that kind of thing, those kind of sins seem to have more social implications. And so if, if we get angry and, you know, fussing somebody driving down the road, you know, and we say, well, you know, that seems to, as, to me as though we categorize sin, you know, well, this right. is not as bad. And so, you know, we, we're all, you're a hypocrite, basically, if you say, well, he needs to give that up completely before he can be saved because I'm the same way. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, I, there are certain things that I do that, you know, you just... I, I hate them, and I like to, right. to whip them, but it's just, you know, it's the kind of thing where I can't do it either, and it's just different types of sin, I guess. Yeah. Well, you can, uh, <coughs> smoking's a good example. Like, there are some groups that will not fellowship somebody that smokes. Uh, uh, most people that smoke would like to quit, you know, and, and, uh, and it's easy for us that have never smoked to say, wham, just quit right away, and, 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 and some do. But I can see how that a person can become addicted to something like that and honestly repent and put their trust in the Lord and, and obey, obey, and then maybe several weeks down that they give in to that, you know, and have it through the, like Jesus said, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. You know, so, but the point is they can work on that and it may take a while before, or maybe they, if they quit right away, fine, but it may take a while. But I'm not so sure, but that we push people away by turning Christianity into a thing of salvation by law, instead of letting people have the opportunity to develop and mature, and those of us that have had an environment where we were brought up by Christians and didn't develop some of these bad habits, we ought to just be thankful for that instead of demanding that perfect change right away on, on these people. Now look at the Corinthians and the problems they had after they became Christians that the Jews never had. The Jews had problems in another realm, but the Jews never had the moral problems that the Corinthians did. They, they had a different moral background. I think an important concept can maybe get across to these people is that you don't, you don't plan it. You certainly don't plan it that, you know, we slip and fall. Right. But right, nobody... You would, that would not be a... Yeah, uh, what she has reference to on this planning, uh, we've dealt in a couple of situations 
the uh, in fact, I'll deal with the situation I had in New Jersey, really good here, that a man that was a fellow preacher, and he was conducting himself in an immoral way in his life. You know, people wondered how could he continue to preach, and yet he had this moral problem constantly in his life, and he had. He constantly, his, his sermons were, 90% of his sermons revolved around the grace of God, you know, and Barbara and I had noticed that just when we were starting to work together and heard him preach and all that, it was just constantly on the grace of God, which was fine, and it was good sermons, but he never, never preached sermons dealing with laws and commands and, and doing certain, it was constant on, on this other, you know, and so it came out that, you know, he was unfaithful to his wife, and he was, you know, he really had done some things that, that was wrong. <laughs> But he actually had a planned course of immorality, and he just had this thing where as long as he confessed it, then that was fine. But there was really no repentance. It was just it's like he had his planned in his mind. And we had a similar situation here, where somebody had a course of life that was immoral. And, and then his idea was as long as it was not out in public, that he could confess it, and, and it was fine. Well, obviously, he was not you know repenting of that. So I think that what she's saying that that uh, we, we always, if we love God and have our faith in Him, obviously are striving to do what's right, but recognizing we will fall short, and then always repenting and you know confessing that type thing. But I honestly believe that as Christians, I'm not sure we've treated these people that have AIDS in a right way. I'm not sure we treat homosexuals correctly. I'm not sure we have dealt fairly with the people on drugs and all. And that a lot of those people are really in distress about their situation. Uh, some of them, maybe many of them are sorry, they know that they've made mistakes and all, and, and yet they're in that predicament. And I think that in the same way that Paul went to the pagan world, that we ought to be going with the good news of so that it is good news because it does not depend on your effort. It's a free gift. Repent, put your trust in him, and then recognize you'll never be perfect, but you'll head in that direction, you know. And just like you mentioned on the temper, I think that's a good one. That, uh, if, if every now and then I lose my temper and, and say something I shouldn't say or do something I shouldn't do or whatnot, and God can forgive me, then why can't he forgive that person that has a problem with alcohol or something like that? He's not all the same to God. Sure. That, uh, uh, and even with your temperament, your environment had a whole lot to do with, if you had parents that were constantly blowing up and losing their temper, you maybe could have gotten a habit of that in the same way that somebody else that had parents that didn't do that. You know, you, you, we can have advantages there over somebody else. Anybody else have any comment before we close for tonight? Paul, do you think, well, you know, you mentioned smoking a while ago. Do you think that somebody that's in a situation where they don't see anything wrong with that, I mean, you know, there's there's nothing in the Bible that specifically mentions smoking, right. and so if they're in a say a congregation somewhere or whatever that that that's just not condemned or there's nothing ever said about it, and they just continue smoking, is well, I mean, unless they see that it, there's something wrong with it or they okay. it's hurt, I mean, it's obvious now from what the medical right. profession says that it's bad for you. Right. So. Well, there, I believe there was a time in our history when you could have that situation. I know a lot of the, the older people that were reared on farms where they raised tobacco and it was their top crop, they didn't think any more about smoking than, than chewing gum. And I mean, I, uh, my grandfather, who's 98, smoked a pipe all through the years. He's 98 now. You know, he fi finally quit. But I'm saying he never thought any more of that pipe 
the Jew and God. He went to church every Sunday, and very devout in his beliefs, but he always smoked that pipe. And he didn't see anything wrong with tobacco. He, he raised tobacco and was in it. So I'm saying that there have been those pipe people, even though in their ignorance, they were destroying their health, and in their ignorance, they were addicted, whether they realized it or not. All right, now, in our situation today, there is so much information that it's, it's hard for me to believe you can have that kind of situation where somebody just in all honesty thinks it's good for him. That, and really, my experience has been that most Christians that do will admit that it's not the best thing, and they will admit they're just addicted to it. You know, and, and maybe they could you know, go out and quit, but I, I think we have to leave that kind of thing between them and, and right. God. You know, But I really don't know how a Christian could walk around and just think that that was okay when it's not just his own health, it's the example he's setting before the young people. And I think as Christians, from a standpoint of our witness to the world, any time that it's obvious that we're addicted to something fleshly, I think we've got two strikes against us, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, anything of that nature. And tobacco is just a good example. But I really believe that it just looks worldly, and it, it's, it's, uh, it puts two strikes against us from, from that standpoint. You know? But yet I still believe that we do have some sincere Christians that are addicted and, and will, you know, that God knows their heart and all. And I, you know, I'm not going to look at anybody and say, hey, you're lost because you're smoking, you know. And, and see, you can take that further, too. Uh, you can take it into being overweight. That uh, we, we now, it used to be, you go back a century, and it's, it was actually thought to be healthy. To be over there. Well, there have been times in societies where the healthy people that were, were overweight, uh, you know, and all. And now, you know, you can show, and I'm not talking about a little bit over, I'm talking about real obesity and all, that uh, that definitely is detrimental to the health. Or you don't exercise. You know, they, we can take our little statistics now and say that if you exercise regularly, you can add three or four years to your lifespan or maybe more. Mm -hmm. And if you if you eat right, exercise, watch your weight, etc. Uh, don't smoke, don't drink, you might easily live 15 or 20 or so years longer than if you engage, you know. But, but there again, I don't think any of that can be tied into, you know, anything dealing with uh, salvation. Right. I mean, most, uh, in fact, anybody, that, any of us that would be off in any of that is not a, a thing where it's a willful type thing where we're trying to take our life or anything like that. It's, you're due to the spirit being really in the flesh weak many times. Anybody else want to make any comments? Okay. Remember then for next time that we're going to think in terms of that on Genesis and we'll start. You know, okay. if you don't have uh, time to read the whole book, just gleam it, you know, and get a good idea. Just gleam it real good. That'll be next Saturday. Yeah. Okay.